0: Got time for a quick story. Exile had number ones in different genres at a time when genres didn't cross over all that often. They had the number one hit, Kiss You All Over, in 1978 on the Billboard Hot 100. But then they had 10 number ones on the Billboard Country Chart in the mid 1980s, 1984 to 88. Very talented band. They had pop success, they had country success, and all the while they were themselves. They didn't reinvent themselves, they were who they were. And they worked with a lot of others around that time. In between number ones, they were working in Lexington, Kentucky. They're in the Kentucky Music Hall of Fame, they're from Kentucky. Well, for a while, and while they were releasing albums of their own, they also worked for some other artists. And they would spend time working on their own music And some of those tapes, of all these songs they would work on, were seemingly lost. Until a few years ago, they were found. And they now comprise the Garage Tapes, which was released this past August of 2019. 30 songs, 30 unreleased recordings, mostly from around 1979 to 82, some after that time as well. But unreleased songs from Exile. And there are some familiar songs that... Weren't Hits by Exile. This is a fascinating listen. So I'm talking today to Marlon Hargis, keyboardist for Exile, been in the band a long time. Marlon, you were part of this. You can describe this a lot better. Let's start with how these actual recordings came about. How did you get into this arrangement with Lemco? And I'll let you describe this, obviously. But how did you get into the arrangement with Lemco to record for them and to get the studio time to then work on these demos?
1: Well, Limco, which is the the name of the studio, uh, it it stood for Lexington Music Company, that was in uh, Lexington, Kentucky, where our home base was, Um, we actually, I had been working at that studio for a few years as an engineer, and uh, and most of the rest of the guys started coming in to do, you know, sessions as session players, and so what we did eventually is is the the studio owner was a, a, a dear friend so we we just kinda worked out a deal where okay look we'll we'll give you a great price on doing uh doing studio recording during the day if you let us use the studio at night. So it was a it was a perfect trade out because what what we would do, we were back in the rock and roll days, we were recording in Los Angeles and um uh, we would go out and spend a few weeks recording. Um then later on we, we recorded in Nashville but in in prep, in preparation for going to Los Angeles, so, so we could save time and money, we would kind of do, kind of pre-record everything in in in, uh, in Lexington or kind of do a demo version of stuff, and uh, that way it would take less time, you know, when we got to Los Angeles. So we uh, we would do this for for months on end, you know, almost every night, and we 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 recorded dozens of songs over. About a five or six year period. So that's, that's how all the recordings came about. Uh, now that's just kind of the first half of the story. Um, over the years, the, the studio eventually closed down. I think in the late 80s, I don't remember exactly when. Um, we thought all of these recordings had been lost because they were, they were on tape. Uh, we, you and I were talking earlier. Uh, a lot of people may not realize what, what tape or vinyl is. But, uh, <laughs> It was, it was, uh, you know, literally recording tape. And, uh, we thought when the studio closed and everything was sold off, we didn't know what happened to all these sorts. They, they were on, you know, stored in tapes. Well, a couple of years ago, they, they were discovered. Actually, JP found a bunch of them in the back of his closet. Um, huh. uh, and, and did you know, we didn't really know that they were still around. So we, we were actually thrilled about it. And, um, uh, over the next uh, year or two, we went through and listened to everything. And, uh, interestingly enough, a lot of the stuff you listen to, you forgot about recording because it, you know, had been so long ago. And some of these songs we never actually put on, them. they didn't make it to the final album. They were just, you know, sort of outtakes. Uh, so, anyway, that's how this Garage Tapes came about. We, we actually sal- salvaged 30 cuts, uh, what we thought were the best cuts of, uh, of everything on there, and, and we still have some stuff we didn't actually use that so we might maybe release again in the future, but uh, these are, as I said, recordings they're, they're demo versions or maybe alternative takes or the or the first takes of a lot of our hit songs and then a lot of songs that never made it and, and maybe people in our part of the country would be aware of those songs because we used to play them a lot live, so it's a little different uh, for us but we were real thrilled about it, and interestingly interesting enough, it's been a huge seller. People are finding that kind of stuff interesting, you know, and uh, a lot of musicians, particularly, you know, I like to I like to hear like alternative versions of of songs, and maybe the a rehearsal version of something. So. Uh, so I've made a long story even longer, but that, that kind of sums up, that kind of sums everything up. I think.
0: Well, and the the, the the subtle differences in some of those songs, like for example, I mean, take the probably one of the better known ones, and that's cl- the closer you get and hearing mm-hmm. how close in some ways that is to Alabama's final recording, but then ultimately some of the the differences they put in, obviously when they they do it, add on a couple more months, maybe they put on like an electronic drum sound or something sure, like yeah. that. Little tweaks, but by and large, I came away from that thinking, "Well, it's like the same song, same arrangement." There's the fade at the end, as opposed to, or like the the bridge of the Alabama version is the end of the Exile version. Is well, describe how does that go in that particular song? How does that go from your version to them? And do they go in the studio then and decide, "Well, we're going to switch this around and change the arrangement a little bit."
1: Well. first of all the version you're referring to on on the garage tapes our our final recorded version of that ended up di- even different than that and uh some of the stuff was switched around a little bit i think the way it started and uh, maybe the fade was different uh, actually the 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 ending you're talking about that alabama uses we ended up doing adding that on our final recording which we did in la uh, which is on a, another album but um I took, and I and I appreciate you listening to that. It, that. I think that's why it's so interesting. It just shows how songs change as they as as they're kind of written and produced and recorded. Uh, and then as far as Alabama making changes, really we have nothing to do with that. I mean, they. I know. I mean, we we know all the guys in Alabama very well. They're, they've become our good friends. And to be blunt about it, and and they would tell you the same thing. They they would listen to our version and then uh their them and their producer would say well let's let's maybe make this change and and you know maybe change this around but um basically they're they're pretty close you know and um another example is a song called take me down uh which we we couldn't save that song on uh, uh on the garage tapes that it, it had it kind of deteriorated but uh that's another Alabama song that fairly close in arrangements, you know, to what we did. So, um, you know, and and it's always a a good thing when another group likes to kind of copy what you do. Um, I'll give you another example of that. There's a song called Heart and Soul. This has nothing to do with Garage Tapes, but it's kind of the same subject, uh, which is Huey Lewis's first number one hit, I believe. Um, That was originally an Exile song.
0: That's right, yeah.
1: and we re- it was written for us, and we recorded it first on, on an album called Heart and Soul back in the uh, uh, late '70s, early '80s. I forget. And uh, Huey basically copied our version almost note for note. Uh, and we again we've met Huey over the years and gotten to know him, and he, he said the same thing. He says, "Oh, guys, I just copied your whole song, you know." <laughs> and uh, he f- and actually when the song starts. I don't know which version it is to a certain point when I hear it because they sound so much alike. But, uh, uh, so anyway, the Garage Tapes, it, it just goes to show how, how music develops and how songs develop and how they change and, uh, and that sort of thing. So that, that's why we find it very interesting. I
0: think. Yeah, can't love you anymore is a is a great example too. Where listening to the version that's on the garage tapes and then listening to the the final released version, there they I I, I struggle. I mean, I can hear again. You can hear the differences, but yeah. if if you're listening from a distance. It almost sounds the same. It was clearly well rehearsed when the these songs were were put together. The, I mean, to the point of when you guys made demos, what was your approach? Well, on that point of demo making, what was your approach to demos in terms of how polished did you want these versions to be before another artist used them or even when you guys went into the studio for a final recording?
1: Well, we wanted them to be as polished as possible. uh and I think, now, one thing you have to remember, we were, this was a little 16-track studio, you know, literally in a garage, so the the equipment was not anywhere near what was available when we were recording, you know, in Los Angeles and New York. Uh, but personally, I'm pretty proud of it. I think it holds up pretty well, uh, and I think it sounds pretty good, you know, for, for basically what we had to work with, but... Uh, but we wanted to make we wanted to make it as as close to being a finished product as possible uh, and again it would it just save time and money you know when we were kind of re-recording everything in Los Angeles
0: yeah and they and they do sound quite professional <laughs> for for demos they sound really well done well executed well arranged well i mean produced for again for a 16 track recorder circa 1980 or so it does sound yeah. it does sound really good uh at the same time you guys were recording for other artists you, the, the kind of the day job if you will the exchange of you get to record but then you're going to work for lemco and and in the sure. liner notes it mentioned regional artists and commercials so what kind of artists and what kind of commercials were you recording for around then
1: well generally uh, local local commercials you know uh just for lexington and maybe cincinnati area just frankly not not the best (laughs) stuff in the world Uh, and uh um we work now uh, and, and and to be totally blunt again a lot of artists that came in may not have been the best in the world either however there were some some really great ones um that studio was was also home to a, a huge amount of of great bluegrass artists. Uh, people like Ricky Skaggs and uh, um, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, Vince Gill and and uh, Keith Whitley and Jerry Douglas. Uh, they we, we actually you know kind of worked in the side by side in the studio with a lot of really great musicians back then. Uh, it was we were very lucky, you know. Uh, so. You know, during during the day when we would work with, you know, maybe what what we would call custom projects. I mean, somebody would come in and say, you know, I want to make a record, and the you know the owner would charge him so much, and we would we would do the best. You know, we would always do the best job we could do on it. You know, we always always try our best. Um, but it was uh, it was nothing that's it, nothing really memorable. I don't think <laughs> just uh, you know just kind of just kind of average stuff.
0: So what's a, what, what kind of a setup was yeah. it in there? The first thing you think of when you hear a garage tape is literally a garage, and there's probably all sorts of auto parts and all sorts of outdoor stuff. I mean, that's the <laughs> first thing anyone thinks of, a garage. Yeah. But this, by the impression I'm getting, well, you were in the room. What If someone walked in there, what would they have seen?
1: Well, yeah, I, I don't mean a garage in the sense of a of a uh, <laughs> A mechanic's garage right it, it was there was someone's garage at home you know i mean you know a, a garage by the right by their house and it, it had been modified into a studio you walk in the front door and you'll you'll uh, it was uh, you know just a large room there was a there was a kind of a homemade drum booth off to the left and uh the kind of thing where everything was kind of homemade like the the the, uh, the walls the acoustic walls were maybe uh, it was made like from from homemade canvas stuff. I mean, it, it wasn't slick, professionally done, but but it worked. And then, of course, there was a control room and and you know and decent gear and everything. But but so it it was like a it was a real studio, but it was just sort of um, uh, down home looking and feeling. Um, but it was very comfortable too. I mean, uh, I mean you you look back at. Uh, Say the Motown studios or studios like that, that re- made some of the greatest recordings ever. They they weren't really classy places, you know. Uh, they were just kind of dumpy, friendly places, you know. Like where, where the band did music from Big Pink, it was just someone's room. So, you know, you don't have to have a million dollar studio to turn out to turn out decent songs. I don't think.
0: Um, the th- You did a lot of songs, obviously, around that time. How, I mean, how many songs a year do you think, on average, would you guys have been working on between daytime stuff and your own stuff?
1: Well, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, say over a week's period, say if someone came in and recorded a couple of songs a day,
0: and again, that,
1: you know, there may have been days where no one did anything for a few days, so... I'd say we did say maybe say we worked on say five five songs a week. I mean, and that's very probably ten songs a week. So you're talking about maybe working on 500 songs a year or something like that. Um, and as far as our material, we we probably recorded. Well, say we have 30 on there. There's probably that many more that either either were lost or weren't or had degenerated too much to keep so it, it um it was just a very prolific time for us i mean we were all you know pretty young at the time and and that's that's really all we wanted to do we wanted just to you know just to tour and play music so it was uh it's just kind of a, a, a i hate to use the word magical time but it, it was just a time period that you know we'll never recapture that
0: and this was also kind of a i don't want to say a time of Transition, though there was obviously transition in the lineup in the band, and this was between yeah. the big the big pop hit and then right. the the big wave of country hits that started right after this time period. It's, it's almost like bracketing 79 to 82. Well, 78 was kiss you all over. 83 right. is when the number one hits started to be released. So create can you kind for a listener, and I know this really covers even a couple years after after that, getting into the mid eighties, mm-hmm. but what was the creative transition genesis that was going on around that time. I know obviously J.P. Pennington wrote a lot of the songs. There's other people who mm-hmm. wrote on here, but how would you describe the incubation of this time in the band evolving from what you heard in the 70s and being more of a pop rock band, at least in that scene, I should say, and then being in the country scene, getting into the mid-80s?
1: Well, the to me, the the sound of the band didn't really change a lot. Uh, we we were always uh, and still are. I call us more of an R and B sounding band uh, because a lot of the influences growing up was, was was Motown and black music and that sort of stuff. Uh, along with, uh, I think a lot of our harmonies come from the the, the British you know sound and everything. Um, we I, I think the big change was maybe in the songwriting. Um, you, you mentioned JP wrote most of the stuff in our pop era but at a certain point Sonny the our bass player Sonny started becoming a really good writer as well uh and then when we when we merged into the pop into the country field he the two of them started writing together you know pretty much all the time and really as as a partnership they turned out a lot of hits over a few years I mean um you know we'd uh when we were in Nashville, we would be touring extremely heavily, and then we'd maybe set aside a month to go do an album and they always managed to come in with songs you know sometimes they would write a song the night before and we'd come in and record it the next day uh so i I think the the big change then was was in songwriting and and the fact that that Sonny became a to me just as important a part of the songwriting as, as JP. they they were a great partnership. Along with another person who was in the group for a year or two, I got him Mark Gray, um, who later went on to have a, a, a successful solo country, um, career. Um, uh, he was in, he was in the band at this time period where the garage tapes are made. Uh, and he was a great songwriter and, and he sang lead on a number of things that, uh, that are on there. So we, we were lucky that we had really, really, really good songwriters at that point. And and that's what made it exciting. I mean, someone would just come in with a song and, you know, start playing it on piano or guitar, and then we'd just start working at it in the studio. And it was extremely exciting as a musician to be able to do that.
0: You guys have been around in, in some form of a band, obviously, since the 60s. So there's been plenty of time for woodshedding and rehearsing and touring and building up your yeah. musicianship. So you get into the 1980s, and this is, by by this point, being, being who you are, but now being in the country spotlight, that's the zone where, oh, we'll use the Nashville musicians. We'll come in with the Nashville songwriters. No. But as you pointed out, you guys are coming no. in with your own songs. And as I understand it, you're playing your own instruments. I, how, I guess, unusual was that for that time to be your own self-contained unit in the, in the as you're getting into the country music scene?
1: Yeah. It, it was not only unusual, it was unheard of. And, and as a matter of fact, when our manager negotiated us a country deal, that was part of the deal is that we have to play. Uh, and we, as far as I know, and I'm, I'm 99.9% sure of this, we were the first country band to play on our own records. Hmm. Uh, because it, as you said, that just wasn't the way it was done, you know? Uh, and they were great country play, you know, great studio musicians, but that's not what we wanted. And, and, and our producer, buddy, killing, uh, who at that point had a had a great country track record as well. He he understood that, and uh, Buddy just kind of sat back and let us do our own thing, you know. And we, because we, uh, as part of working all those hours in Limco and in the garage, you know, we we sort of knew what we were doing in the studio, you know. <laughs> we didn't really need <laughs> need someone guiding us. So so Buddy Buddy was a great producer in the sense that he he wouldn't say a lot, but when he did say something, he, it was important. I mean, he would, he was a great song guy and a great arranger. He knew, you know, let's change this verse here and let's move this over here. So he, it, it, it was a, it was a perfect partnership between us and buddy when we went into the country, but no, it, we, we, uh, you know, it was an, it was a very unique thing and, and we're again, very proud that we were kind of, uh, uh, trendsetters in that aspect.
0: Of the songs on the garage tapes of these of those thirty songs, obviously some did become big hits. Some mm-hmm. some some you guys ended up releasing and then some became obviously we mentioned Alabama before, but of the songs that are on there that maybe didn't I didn't get that as much attention, is there one or are there a couple songs where you go, I wish that had gotten more of a of a spotlight and now it, it does because it gets to be on this release?
1: You know, I'm actually <laughs> I'm actually looking at the liner notes to see what. uh, There's a song. I'm trying to think. uh, It's a song that Mark did. Um, Well, I'll tell you another. One of my favorites, it was our first country single release. It's called The High Cost of Leaving, uh, which was not a top ten hit. Uh, But it kind of got us in the door of of the country uh field. My favorite song on here is a song called Smooth Sailing. Uh and that is is, is sung by Mark Gray. It was written by he and uh, Johnny Slate, I believe. Um and I can't really tell you why. It's just one of those songs I never get tired of listening to. And and I think he may have put that on a on one of his solo albums, but I don't most people have never heard the song. But it's just it's just one of those. To me, one in a hundred great, you know, of, of, of a hundred songs he wrote, it's one of his best. It just uh, every time I hear it, it brings back great memories. and I just love listening to it. So that 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 that's my personal favorite on the album i think i think i'm gonna say an album again on the cd or what, or whatever you, whatever the hell you call it
0: see i look at it as an album is an album that's a collection of stuff so i'm going to keep saying album as long as they're around there and plus hey yeah. I, what vinyl's about to outsell cds now i understand so there's a there's there's hope for the physical yeah. format still out there
1: yeah and and let's, let's face it albums sound better i mean they, they have a wider frequency range they, they, they sound warmer uh, we've we've talked about course, the problem is there's there's too many songs. We've talked about doing a vinyl version of this at some point. Uh, the one issue with vinyl is as you remember you can only get so much so many songs on an album uh as opposed to uh, to a CD. So it would have to be like four albums, I guess. <laughs> but uh um but, you know there's there's nothing like just getting an album out of the sleeve and putting it on and putting the needle down and reading and reading the album notes and looking at the pictures. There, there's nothing really to me that can replace that. You know, that's, that's still the best way to listen to music, as far as
0: I'm concerned. Last question for you on this tour. You've mentioned the reaction, people really liking the new release. Got the tour dates, as I mentioned, in Wisconsin coming up in a few days, and of course there's more dates to come after that. What, if anyone is going to see one of your shows, what songs are they going to see? How many from the garage tapes and how many other songs are people seeing on this tour?
1: well uh basically, I think everyone will know pretty much every song i mean really what we do is we we do all our hits or or to be honest as many as we can uh in a in an hour and a half show we we actually don't have time to we have to leave out two or three of our hits you know I guess that's a problem to have you know a good problem but and and we try to change around every once in a while and and do something a little different but uh, you'll hear, you'll hear our versions of, of, Take Me Down and the closer you get off the garage tapes. Um, an interesting song, the, the last song on the garage tapes is not an Exile song. It's, it's an old Tennessee Ernie Ford song, uh, called 16 Tons. And, uh, we do a really different version of it to say the least. And we actually worked that, and, and, and another quick, interesting story. That cut on the garage tapes is actually from a rehearsal. We 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 had record, We used to record all our rehearsals in. We worked the song up, but we never, for some reason, played it live. Uh, and no, and no one really remembers live. Uh, but we never played it. But then when we uh, released the garage tapes, we decided, all right, we need to work up something off of that. So we worked that up. Are doing it in our live show, and and it actually gets one of the best reactions of the night just because it's something totally different, I think. And then a lot of, a lot of people remember that song from Tennessee Ernie Ford, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just a kind of an iconic song. So you'll hear that. Uh, You'll also hear some of our versions of, of hits that other people have had. You know, I mentioned Alabama, Uh, Sonny wrote a couple of huge hits for restless heart and diamond Rio. And, and Les wrote some hits for other artists. Uh, I mentioned the Huey Lewis song. So, we throw in kind of a medley of songs like that, which people generally aren't aware that we wrote. So um, I, I always say, I think I think you recognize probably every song in the set, and uh, and that's our whole point because we we want people to to hear what they want to hear and and enjoy themselves, and just you know maybe bring back some good memories from over the years.
0: Yeah, when she cries is actually one of my one of my favorite songs from Russell's Heart, and, and there's an exile connection right there. And I've always been yeah. a Yes s- Oh, go ahead.
1: No, I said sonny, sonny wrote that uh, funny story. That's the song "Exile Pasta." Really? Decided, really. I said, I don't know we were a bunch of idiots. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know, because he, he would, you know, like any other songwriter, he'd bring in songs, or anybody would say, "Well, what do you think about this?" And I, and somebody said, oh, "I, said, I don't think that's us." So, <laughs> uh, so uh, anyway, uh-huh. so that again is a great song. Uh, he also wrote "Beautiful Mass, which is. To me, one of my favorite Diamond Rio songs, mm-hmm. so, uh, and we and we do short versions of of, of our versions of those. So uh, again, I think it, I think it'll be an interesting show, and and uh, we just basically want people to have a good time and and just kind of enjoy themselves. It's, there's no no huge message in our show. It's just basically have a good time and enjoy the music.
0: There is a lot of good music to hear in those shows, and hopefully people check them out again the next two tour dates here in Wisconsin, down in the southern part of Wisconsin, in Hartford on Friday the 25th, and Edgerton on Saturday the 26th. Marlon Hargis from Exile, thank you for all the music you guys have been doing over the years and churning out more music. Thank you very much for taking some time to chat with us today.
1: Rick, well, it's been a pleasure. You, you've you've uh, you've made it very interesting. You 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 know your material, and you asked some great questions. So it's uh, it's been a fun interview for me too. And we're uh, we're definitely looking forward to seeing our, our Wisconsin friends uh, pretty soon in the next few days.
0: Great interview there with Marlon Hargis of Exile. That's a, a fascinating release, the Garage Tapes give it a listen if you're an exile fan if if you're not a full-blown fan of exile doesn't matter give it a listen you're going to learn something about music history and you'll get somewhat of an insight into the into the arrangement and recording process when you listen to this album the garage tapes out since this past august of 2019 you can see exile on tour as i was talking with him about uh, tour dates again as of the recording of this Edition of Got Time for a Quick Story on October 22nd. We're three days away from the show in Hartford, Wisconsin, down near the Milwaukee suburbs. That's on Friday the 25th. Next day, they'll be in Edgerton, Wisconsin, south of Madison, north of Janesville. They got other tour dates later on in the year, getting around Christmas time. You can learn about all the tour dates, buy tickets, learn about all things Exile at their website. That's exile.biz. Exile.biz. B-I-Z. Exile. Dot biz. Thanks, as always, to Greatest Hits 98.1 Radio in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, my employer, for providing the studio where I do these interviews. You can also listen to the interviews on Got Time for a Quick Story at the Greatest Hits 98.1 website, which is GreatestHits981.com. And, of course, you can listen to Got Time for a Quick Story on platforms like Apple, Android, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher. Make sure you subscribe so you get notified of new episodes and make sure you rate the episodes, preferably highly, use your own opinion, but the higher the better because that means more people will notice. Got time for a quick story and we'll get more and more interviews going down the road. Got time for a quick story? I'm Luke Anthony.